Thank you very much. If you would this morning turn to Revelation 15. We're going to look at chapters 15 and 16 as we continue our trek through the book of Revelation. Revelation is an amazing book. Uh, From the youngest years of my life as a Christian, it's always been uh, one of my favorites, if not my favorite book, for various reasons. One of the reasons is it is a revelation. It reveals things about reality that we can't see just by looking at what we see. It tells us the truth about what is truly going on. And it's a letter. It's a letter that was written to seven churches in the first century, and yet that letter is also meant for all of us as Christians uh, throughout the ages as well. And it's also a prophecy, which means it uh, proclaims the word of God in such a way, in this case, to tell us what the future is going to be. And it's written in what is it called an apocalyptic style, which means it's a series of pictures. And it's meant to convey things that are true and real, and yet the pictures don't do justice to the realities that are behind those pictures, but it does indicate to us Uh, what those realities are and how great they truly are. And so I'd like for us to read uh, chapter 15 and chapter 16 because they go together and uh, see what the Lord would have us uh, see from these chapters this morning and find some encouragement for us all. So begin uh, with me in verse 1 of chapter 15. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel of the water saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. And they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. This is the word of God. Today I want to talk about what God really thinks about evil in light of these two chapters There really is a huge question that all of us have to deal with in a world like ours, in a world where there is a lot of good, but there's also a lot of evil. There are a lot of things to rejoice about, but there are a lot of things that are just hard. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. And you've probably heard many people in different ways raise the question of whether or not a good God could be sovereign over such a world. And it raises the question, is God okay with the evil and suffering in this world? And whether we ask that question outright or not, it's a question that has to be in the back of our minds 
when we look at what is going on around us, we we see um, people harming other people in all kinds of ways. We see in marriages abuse taking place. We see between parents and children abuse taking place. We see uh, in our own country in this day and time the medical community beginning to abuse children through all kinds of uh, surgeries that they should not have based on gender ideas and things like this. We see persecution around the world where believers are being tortured and killed uh, in ways that we may experience here in this country before too long. We have the murder of babies in the womb, uh, thousands upon thousands. Um, We have the sex trafficking of children and young adults. Um, We have just all kinds of things. We have people in power who are making laws and policies that are hurting people in all kinds of ways, and they are unconcerned about the impact of those policies and those laws as long as they stay in power, as long as they increase their power and can benefit from it. We have media and even people in government and even in the religious sphere uh, spouting narratives that are just plain lies, just plain lies. And so we look at all the evil in the world and we begin to wonder, you know, what does God think about all this? Is God okay with all of this? If you imagine uh, what happens in a lot of movies, uh, you, you watch the Chronicles of Narnia and you've got the villain, the White Witch. What happens when the White Witch dies? People cheer. Or in the Lord of the Rings, when the orcs are defeated or Sauron is defeated, People cheer. Or in the Marvel movies, Thanos gets what's coming to him. And all those are villains. Whether you're familiar with those villains or not, they're villains that people look at. And as you experience the movie, you really want justice to come. You don't want that evil to succeed. You don't want those villains to be victorious. And so when we read the Bible and we read these kinds of things in the scriptures, we need to understand that when the angels worship God for what he's doing, it's just like how we respond when we realize that 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 is evil and it needs to be brought to an end and properly dealt with. And in experiencing those things and watching a movie and being approving of that, when the hero comes in, and takes care of the evil villain, when our hearts approve of that, that's just a small reflection of what's being reflected here when the angels worship God for his doing what needs to be done in light of evil. And yet, as I said, we tend to question whether or not God is really good and whether or not he is okay with evil or not. In in fact, if you read in Malachi chapter 2, it says this, You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, How have we wearied him? And so the idea is the people of God, Israel is responding to God, How have we wearied you? And it goes on to say, In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. 
So you got people in that day and time who are wearying God by continually repeating this false narrative. God um, delights in those who do evil. Otherwise, there wouldn't be so much evil in the world. Or it goes on to say, they ask the question, where is the God of justice? Meaning they repeat it over and over. They weary God by questioning him and accusing him of delighting in evil and not showing up to show justice to those who deserve it. And so that is something that all of us as sinners wrestle with to one degree or another in our lives. And so the Old Testament in so many ways and these chapters in the book of Revelation, along with with other things that are said in the book of Revelation, are meant to address that accusation of God. Does God really delight in evil? Is God not going to be just in bringing appropriate justice upon evil? Will he do what is right? And so I just want to touch on a few things this morning as we look at these two chapters with the brief amount of time that we have. What does God really think about evil? The first thing is God has a plan regarding evil. And that's what we see in these chapters. In the book of Revelation, you have seven seals and seven trumpets, and then you get to the seven bowls. And the seven bowls are bowls of wrath, and they are pictures of what is to come, the justice that God is going to bring on the world because of the evil in the world. And as I said before, the reality of what we find here is worse than the symbol. The symbols are hard to understand. There are plenty of people who uh, try to understand exactly what the symbols represent, and um, we can get an idea of what it speaks to, but how much of it is actually physical and visible, and how much it, of it is um, a spiritual um, judgment on people uh, remains to be seen. But let me just briefly highlight what we see in verses, uh, the cha- in chapter 16, it talks about the bowls. The first bowl talks about a loathsome and malignant sores on people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Obviously, some take that as physical. Some take that as just a picture of all kinds of um, health being ended. That uh, the health that people have enjoyed by common grace comes to an end. And then the second bowl in verse 3 talks about the sea becoming blood like that of a dead man. Obviously, some see that as actually happening physically. Others see it as God bringing in to people having the resources that they need for life, which the the sea uh, can represent that kind of picture as well. The third bowl talks about a judgment on rivers and springs of water that also become blood. The idea of rivers and springs of water are often thought of in terms of that which you drink uh, and all and the fountain of joy type thing. And so for some, it's a literal thing. For others, it's the end of whatever in common grace would bring you happiness and joy, even as a rebel against God. It's, it's a picture of things coming to an end because in these bowls, the wrath of God, the temporal expressions of God's wrath against sin are wrapped up. They come to an end. 
The fourth bowl talks about the sun uh, scorching men with fire. Some see that as physical. Some see that as God bringing into the comfort of life, the common grace comforts. The fifth bowl talks about the kingdom of the beast or the Antichrist being darkened. Darkness is often a picture of confusion. Again, some people see this as a very physical thing. Others see this as God ending any sense of order but bringing chaos and confusion to the world. The sixth bowl talks about the Euphrates River drying up and uh, preparing the way for the war of God, which is called Armageddon. Um, In that day and time, people associated uh, the Euphrates River as a barrier between the people of God and Israel and their enemies. And so the drying up of the river was seen as a removing of restraint against evil. Some see this as an actual physical thing. Others see this as God ending all common grace restraint on sinners uh, in their heart toward God's people. And then finally, the seventh bowl talks about a great earth-like quake, like such as never been experienced, about huge hailstones. Again, a lot of people see this as actually happening physically. Others see it, see it as the end of all earthly power. And so how much of this is physical? How much of this is picturing things that go far beyond just the physical picture? Uh, one day we'll find out exactly how it is all going to uh, play out. But the point is, God in these judgments is bringing things to an end. Uh, His period of common grace to a sinful, rebellious world is being brought to an end. In the trumpet judgments, you can see that the impact of those trumpet judgments are partial. talks about a third of this, a third of that, and things like that. But in the bowl judgments, it's everything in the sea dies. It's a complete judgment, temporal judgment on the world. The reality is God never intended for evil to last forever. And you actually see that from the very beginning. If you recall, after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that Jesus said uh, that he was going to send Adam and Eve out of the garden. And the explanation for that was, God says, Now he, Adam, might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. Many people see that as God saying, I do not intend to allow evil to last forever. Man has rebelled against me. He now now has a heart inclined against me, an evil heart. I'm not going to let him eat from the tree of life and live forever in that way. Evil will be dealt with. And it says in 1 John 3, verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, in his first coming, he destroyed the works of the devil in that he died on the cross and did everything that needed to be done for evil to be properly dealt with. And yet there's this period of grace and the proclamation of the gospel before he brings it all to a conclusion. And that conclusion is pictured in chapters 15 and 16. And so the first thing is God has a plan regarding evil. He never intended for evil to last forever. The second thing is 
God, through this picture, these pictures that we see in these chapter chapters, is meant to communicate his hatred toward evil. As I read from Malachi, it's very easy for us to think that, well, maybe God's okay with all this evil and all this suffering because he's not doing anything about it. Where is the God of justice? And so God reveals to us how he actually feels about all the things that are happening that that we groan over and we despise and we mourn over. Um, that is just a small reflection of the heart of God that opposes evil, that hates evil. And that's why we find in chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, it says that the um, redeemed sing uh, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and it says, Righteous, righteous and true are your ways. And then it goes on to say, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And in the context, it's talking about his righteous acts of judgment on evil and on sin. If you look on in verses 5 through 8, it's significant that the angels and the plagues, the bowls of wrath, come from the temple in heaven, which means it comes from the very presence of God. It's meant to communicate that what is happening there is meant to communicate God's attitude toward the evil in the world. So that uh, the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple to distribute the judgment of God. And then you see in verses 5 through 7 in chapter 16, it says, Righteous are you because you judge these things You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. True and righteous are your judgments. We might look at what's happening in these chapters and say, wow, isn't this maybe a little over the top? Maybe isn't this a little excessive? And over and over again, the Bible's telling us that this is just. It's not over the top. It's not God being arbitrary. It's not God being petty. It is God being just and bringing a just judgment on a rebellious world that refuses to repent, even though it's being continually called to repentance, it refuses to repent. And so the wrath of God is is justice, not injustice. There's a story in the Old Testament with when Abraham um, is approached by what it appears to be initially three men, but we find out that two of those men are angels and one of those men appears to be a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ himself. And so uh, the two angels go to Sodom to investigate the wickedness, so to speak. And Abraham is talking to Jesus. And basically Abraham says, will you wipe out the city if there are 50 righteous and the Lord says, you know, if there's 50 righteous, I won't wipe it out. And Abraham says, what about 45? And then what about 40? What about 30? And what about 20? And what about 10? And every time the Lord says, okay, if there's that many righteous there, I, I won't, I won't destroy it. That's a picture of God's great, great grace and mercy and patience both with Abraham and with the people in Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, okay, if there's just 10, I I won't destroy it. And in the midst of that, Abraham says, 
Suppose there are 50 within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And the answer is, you better believe it. The judge of all the earth will be just. He will not be petty. He will not be arbitrary. He will not overreact. But he will properly respond to evil. And that's what we see in these chapters. Now, when I think about the fact that the Bible says, uh, what the Bible says about the wrath of God, the judgment of God is a terrifying thing. And it really is. It's truly terrifying. And the question is, what's so terrifying about it? Well, there are passages like Galatians 6, which says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. In Romans chapter 2, it says that there's going to be a revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. On the one hand, there are those who don't like the idea of God's judgment because they're afraid he will be unjust that he won't give people that we think ought to be judged what they deserve or he will overreact and give people what they don't deserve that's part of the temptation that we see in malachi chapter 2 that god will not be just But I think there's a stronger reason why that all of us wrestle with the wrath of God. It's because we're afraid he might be just. That he might really exist and that he might really judge people according to their deeds, according to what they really deserve. We might really get what we deserve. And maybe those we love might get what they deserve. We might get what we would only wish on other people to get, like the Hitlers. Or what we deserve might be truly terrifying. I think those kinds of things are what make my own heart say, wow, that's scary stuff. That is really scary stuff because if if God is just, what if I were to get what I deserve? I think it might look like that. And that's the point. That's what it would look like if we got what we deserve. The reality is we're, we're all, all of us are guilty of serious sins. All of us. And we know it. We may suppress that truth, but we know it. We know we have seriously sinned against God. And God tells us these things to bring home to us the seriousness of our sin that we might run to a Savior. And that's the good news of the point, point three about the fact that God delivers from evil. He delivers from the consequences of our own evil. You know, we talk about being saved, and I've heard R.C. Sproul and others, you know, ask the question, um, saved from what? Do you ever think about what you're really saved from if you're trusting in Jesus? Well, we're actually saved from God. We're saved from the wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. We're saved from the wrath of God that we might enjoy the goodness and love of God forever. If you were to go back into Revelation 14, you would see the picture of two harvests. One harvest is a harvest of grain. The other is a harvest of grapes. The grain 
is gathered in, which is a picture of the people of God, those who've trusted in Christ, being rescued from judgment. The other picture is a picture of grapes, all those who've refused to repent, being crushed under the judgment of God. And so what we see in chapter 15 is we see the redeemed singing a song. It says in verse 2 of chapter 15, And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass. Now, the idea of being victorious over is very important because at the beginning of the book, in seven different times, it talks about Jesus saying, I promise these things to those who overcome. Overcome what? Overcome the temptation to worship the beast. Overcome the temptation to walk away from your faith in Jesus. Those who refuse to give in, but hang on to Jesus until the end, no matter what they must suffer. Those who overcome, as it says here, the beast and his image and the number of his name, which refers to the temptation to run after the things of the world and to reject Christ or to avoid suffering by rejecting Christ, whatever that might look like. And it says those who were victorious by their faith in Jesus. As it says in First John, they sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses was after God rescued them from, from Egypt. They rejoiced in the fact that God judged the nation of Egypt and he drowned uh, those who were pursuing them in the sea. They rejoiced at God's rescuing them from slavery and rescuing them from judgment as well. And so the good news is that because Jesus came, we can be rescued from the wrath of God. That's the whole picture of the Noah's flood. Uh, Christ is the ark that we're to run into, that we not would not be overwhelmed with the flood waters of judgment. It's the whole picture of Lot being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah before hellfire, uh, hailstones, and everything else rains down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is rescued. It's a picture of God rescuing his people. And so when we think about what's being communicated here, we have to ask ourselves, is God going to rescue us from great tribulation or great wrath? And over and over again in various ways, the Bible says we will go through tribulation, and that tribulation may be very, very great. But the good news is that tribulation is not wrath on us as believers. Maybe wrath on the world that's in rebellion against God. But God has promised that in Jesus we will be rescued from his wrath. That's what it says in Romans chapter 5. We exult in our tribulations, regardless of how intense or great they might be, because it says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so the good news is that whatever may come our way, as it says in Romans chapter 8, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer 
through him who loved us. God has not promised that we would not go through great tribulation, but he has promised that nothing will separate us from the love of God, and we will not receive his wrath because Jesus has already received it in our place. And that's where our our joy comes in, even in the midst of tribulation. But the fourth thing is, with regard to those who refuse to repent and turn to God for mercy, uh, these chapters communicate God's opposition to evil. God brings temporal judgments on sinners in this world to varying degrees of intensity to communicate his opposition to evil and actually to call sinners to repentance, even through those very judgments. If you notice in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 16, it talks about the fact that as God was sending these judgments, um, it says in verse 9 and verse 11, they did not repent. The implication being that even in the midst of these temporal judgments, God was calling them to repentance and they refused to repent. And it says not only did they refuse to repent, but they blasphemed God. If you look at um, chapter 15, 9 and 11, as well as chapter 16, verse 21, men blasphemed God because of the plagues. And so what does that mean? It means that God's just response to evil in the world For those who refuse to repent reveals their hatred of God and their unwillingness to turn to him for mercy. Why would they turn to God for mercy if they have a hatred toward him? If they see him as being evil and not wanting their good and therefore they refuse to turn to God for mercy and instead they harden their heart. If you go through these chapters, you realize there are all kinds of allusions to what God did in judging Egypt. All kinds of pictures from that experience. And it reminds us of how Pharaoh hardened his heart. That as God judged Egypt, uh, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart. It says in Exodus 9, he sinned again and hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not let the sons of Israel go. In the midst of all that judgment, well, In another sense, the same kind of thing happened with Job's wife. Job wasn't experiencing the wrath of God, but he was experiencing tribulation. And if you remember, after he was covered from sores from head to toe, his wife said, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. It's another way of saying blaspheme God, accuse God of doing something wrong. See, the reason why people respond the way they do to God's temporal judgments is when God brings these things into our lives, one one of two things is going to happen. We're either going to see our sin and say that we are evil and we need a Savior or we're going to say God is evil and we need to be saved from him. That's what happens. When these kinds of things begin to happen, either we acknowledge our evil or we accuse God of being evil. We refuse to repent and we blaspheme God. And that's the dynamic that is happening here. That's why 
That just shows us our natural sinful condition. Um, C.S. Lewis said, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. What does he mean by that? He means that ultimately we naturally don't want God. We, no matter what God may do in sending temporal judgments to lead us to repentance, his kindness leads us to repentance, his temporal judgments lead us to repentance. But if we refuse to repent, it shows us our own hearts. It exposes our own heart. You can actually see that kind of thing in Matthew 8 if you read about um, the story of the great storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat and the uh, disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, we're perishing. And he gets up and he says, oh, ye have little faith. And he calms the storm. And their response is, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And different um, versions of that story, uh, it will talk about they were afraid. They were afraid of the storm and then they began to be even more afraid of Jesus because they realized that his control over things was far beyond what they had even imagined. And then if you go on and you read on from there, it talks about how Jesus cast out this demon. And after the people in the area saw what had happened in that man's life, when Jesus cast out that demon, it says they implored Jesus to leave. Get away from us. Why would people say, get away? Because we began to realize that um, this man has control over things that we don't have. And I'm not so sure I can trust him with that control. Uh, I don't believe that he's truly good and loving. Um, This guy's not tame. I can't control this guy. And I don't think he's good. Like C.S. Lewis said, God is not tame, but he's good. As sinners, we, when we begin to realize that God's not tame, we can't control him, then because we don't believe he's good, we don't want to have anything to do with him unless God changes our heart and does so sovereignly and graciously. Well, let me wrap up here. Um, the last thing this is, these two chapters highlight for us is that not only does God oppose evil throughout history, but it, at the, in the end, God will bring an end to evil. In chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, we see uh, what is referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon, And the phrase here in the New American Standard says Har-mageddon. Um, Armageddon is just a, a different way of translating that for different reasons. But it basically means uh, the Mount of Megiddo, or some would translate it the Mount of Assembly. And there's uh, controversy over what that really refers to because there really is no mountain in that area in Israel. But some say that it just refers to a plain in which many famous battles have been fought. Others would say it's just figurative for the idea of people gathering to battle God in this great war. And so ultimately, however you look at what this may um, actually manifest itself in, it's a conflict 
between God and the devil and rebellious man, which will come to a climax in what is called the Battle of Armageddon. And so what is that all about? You know, for a lot of people, climate change is all about avoiding Armageddon. It's all about avoiding the end of the world. The reality is man is not going to bring an end to the world, but God is going to bring an end to the world. And he's going to bring an end to the world uh, to end evil. And I think what Tolkien was trying to convey in The Lord of the Rings and having this little hobbit carry this little ring to Mount Doom to throw it into the fire is a picture of the destruction of evil. The ring that rules all rings is a picture of man wanting to be God, wanting to rule over everything. And that power, that precious power of being in charge actually causes us not to be like God, but to become the devil. When you want to be like God and you're not God, you become the devil. That's the point. It That desire causes you to become evil and to manifest evil because that desire is an evil desire from the very beginning. And so the destruction of evil is necessary for the ultimate good that God has promised to us. And so what we see in the history of the world is God responding to that initial fall where Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And every sinner from that point has wanted to be like God. And the Tower of Babel, Babylon is referred to in the book of Revelation in various ways where um, mankind together wants to reach heaven. Why? It's just another manifestation of wanting to be in charge, wanting to be God. But God says, I'm going to bring it to an end at some point. And it's interesting, it says in Revelation 16, 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. We've talked about the story about the student in Africa who asked his professor, uh, when it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, what it, what's going to be the shout? And that professor at that point said something like, enough. That's what the Lord's going to shout. He's going to shout, enough. Enough evil, enough suffering, enough rebellion against my will. The word um, that's translated, it is done, it's one word in Greek, and it means it is done, it is over, it has happened. And so you might say, in a sense, Jesus will return and say, okay, it's done. I've had enough. No more evil, no more rebellion, no more suffering of my people. I'm bringing it all to an end. And that's why it says in 2 Thessalonians 1 that when, when Jesus returns, it will be God's righteous judgment. Because he says, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The return of Christ will be relief 
to believers. It will be retribution to those who refuse to repent. So let me just wrap this up, the last few minutes we have here. What should be the response to those who read this and aren't Christians? What I would say, be very, very afraid. Be very, very afraid. There are people who have no fear of God when they ought to be very afraid of God. And that's why the Bible says, don't fear those who are who kill the body, but rather fear him him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. It's actually God's kindness to warn us of a just judgment. Secondly, unbelievers should not let God's kindness to them make them think he will overlook their sins. God is kind to our world. There are people that are blaspheming God every day, cursing God every day in all kinds of ways, and he's still good. He still feeds them and clothes them and gives them good health and meets their needs. And yet, in Romans 2, it says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every person according to his deeds. Third thing is we shouldn't minimize our sins against the holy God. It tells us in Matthew 5, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. You don't have to kill six million Jews in a concentration camp to go to hell. That is horrible. But you can be angry in your heart in such a way that if you had the chance, you might do the same thing. And that is worthy of hell, the Lord Jesus says. There are no misdemeanors. Nobody goes to hell on a misdemeanor. They're all serious, serious crimes against a holy God. The fourth thing is, for those who don't know um, Christ, is that know that you will experience God's wrath if you do not repent and believe in Jesus. That's why Jesus could say, if you see God bringing judgment on people, like when the tower fell on those uh, in his day, or when Pilate sacrificed people, on their, the altar at which they worship in, in Jesus' day, he said, repent, that's the message for you. Don't think that you're better than those who've suffered that judgment. Realize that that's what you deserve as well. And the final thing is, the Bible encourages us to remember that Jesus came to set us free from wrath, to deliver us from this very wrath. And so, for those who are not Christians... What's the ultimate application? Call on God for mercy and give your life to Jesus. That's why it says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That's the good news. We call on God for mercy, trusting in Jesus, who he is and what he did for us, and he forgives us. And we're rescued from the wrath to come. Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. That's the good news. That's what that's the good news we have to share. What about if we're Christians? How should we handle this kind of passage? What should we do with it? First thing, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is not for you. If you've turned from your sin, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then do not be afraid of this. Rejoice that you've been saved from it. Do not be afraid, but rejoice. That's what Jesus could say in Luke 10. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Our hope in Jesus is that we will not experience God's wrath ever. Secondly, see God's judgment and wrath as a strange work compared to his heart to show mercy and grace. In the King James Version, Isaiah 28, 21 says, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim, he shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. Interesting things, if you read the Puritans, they will talk about this verse and how God's justice is talked about as his strange work. And for instance, you've got Thomas Goodwin who said, My brethren, though God is just, yet his mercy may be in some respect to be more natural to him than all acts of justice itself that God shows. He talks about God exercising acts of justice for a higher end, but there's always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There's nothing at all in him against it. That's why it says in Lamentations 3.33, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. He goes on to say, therefore acts of justice or called his strange work and his strange act. Because when it comes to showing mercy, he rejoices. But showing justice is something he would rather replace with mercy. He'd rather show mercy. Thomas Watson says something similar when he says, God is more inclined to mercy than wrath. Mercy is his darling attribute, which he most delights in. Mercy pleases him. Acts of severity are rather forced from God. He does not afflict willingly. He says the bee gives honey. It stings only when it is provoked. Just so, God does not punish until he can bear no longer. Mercy is God's right hand that he is most used to. Inflicting punishment is called his strange work. In a sense, he is not used to it. He is slow to anger, but ready to forgive. Will God exercise justice? Yes, he will. But he'd rather exercise that justice through his son. He'd rather you come to him and pour out your sins and your need to him and receive Jesus. He'd rather you experience his mercy than his justice. We need to convey both to people we talk to that don't know Christ. that There is a day of wrath coming, that God is just, but he would rather show mercy. And Jesus is an able and willing Savior 
for sinners. We can thank God that he's just. We can thank God that he's merciful. We can pray for lost people, and we should. And we should pray for opportunities and courage to share the good news. There's a song, and I'll close with, I know I'm going a little long here, but let me just close with this song. Because this song is meant to remind us of what we have to rejoice in as Christians and what we should desire for those who still are in threat of receiving the wrath of God. That song is called Favorite Song of All. It says in this chapter, chapter 15, that the saints sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. The favorite song of all says, He, God, loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines on mountain peaks. And he loves to hear the raindrops as they splash to the ground in a magic melody. He smiles in sweet approval as the waves crash through the rocks in harmony and creation joins in unity to sing to him majestic symphonies. But his, God's favorite song of all, is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean lift their voices loud and strong, when those purchased by his blood lift to him a song of love, there's nothing more he'd rather hear, nor so pleasing to his ear as his favorite song of all. He loves to hear the angels as they sing, Holy, holy is the Lamb. Heaven's choirs in harmony lift up praises to the great I Am. But he lifts his hands in silence, for silence, when the weakest saved by grace begins to sing. And a million angels listen as a newborn soul sings, I've been redeemed. Because his favorite song of all is the song of the redeemed. When lost sinners now made clean, lift their voices loud and strong. It's not just melodies and harmonies that catches his attention. It's not just clever lines and phrases that causes him to stop and listen. But when any heart set free, washed and bought by Calvary, begins to sing, that's his favorite song of all. It's the song of the redeemed. There's nothing more he'd rather hear nor so pleasing to his ear, that's his favorite song of all. And for all of us here who have trusted Christ, that's our song. That's the song of the redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the song of the redeemed. We thank you that you've promised that there's no wrath ahead for those of us who've trusted in Christ who received that wrath for us. But we pray for grace to share the good news with others who've not been delivered yet from that wrath. May we rejoice in what you've done for us and may we share the good news with those who need to hear it. Father, we love you. We thank you for what you've done. And as we celebrate this Lord's Supper, we pray that we would rejoice in our salvation from wrath and that you would be honored and we would find fresh reason to rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.